and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staten of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, this week we're actually going to turn our attention on ourselves, in part because uh, as I was going through uh, the daily scan of headlines, boom, there you came up with an article, a beautiful essay actually, for the World Post, which is the Huffington Post's international edition. Here's how China is changing Africa's future. It was a piece that you wrote specifically for the Huffington Post, one, you know, a publication that you and I contributed to for many years. Uh, so I was actually very excited to read it. And what's interesting about your take on this is in part because you really are taking a very contrarian view on uh, on China-Africa relations, particularly coming from a Western publication like the Huffington Post. Now, we've talked about this in the past, that typically U.S. and European news publications, um, you know, and I'm generalizing here because it's there is no kind of blanket statement that can really be accurate, but there tends to be a rather cynical view. And your point here is that as the as Africa is moving away from Western influence, that that is a strategic, calculated decision, and Africa is not the victim here, but is actually in control of its own destiny. So I thought let's go through your article and, and find out a little bit more about what you were trying to get into. But before we get started, why don't you give us the premise of what uh, you're, you're you're trying to communicate here in terms of how China is changing Africa's future. The main theme of 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 this Huffington Post special edition or special package of, of articles was focusing on Belt and Road. Um, so, you know, briefly for for those of us for those people who haven't been following this, the Belt and Road Initiative is the Chinese government's um, initiative that that connects it overland via Central Asia to Europe uh, through a, a series of rail networks, and then overseas via Kenya, um, and then through the Suez Canal via Egypt to Greece. Um, so it is this massive rollout of of connected infrastructure um, that connects Beijing with Europe, um, and Africa is, is on the far end of one of these routes. So. Um, this has been drawing a lot of attention, and Huffington Post was putting together a, a big package of different articles about this issue, and they asked me to to write a kind of an overview of what what some of this influence is going to be. Um, so, I made the point that. In the first place, we don't 100% know what the, what the influence is going to be because Belt and Road itself is is such a creature of myth. Um, so you know, it, it it is this this kind of amazing rollout, you know, incredibly expensive, who knows if it's all going to be built, who knows what kind of, you know, what form it'll take in, in the end. Um, but Africa is at the moment pretty optimistic about it, relatively optimistic about it, despite certain misgivings. And the point that I made is that at least Africa is seeing some potential for development, some potential of being uh, recognized as a, as a market or as even as a development partner, rather than in the, the position where it's frequently put by the West, which is a series of problems to solve. So I argued, the overall argument was that in looking at Africa's choices, in relation to China, one needs to think of them as choices in the first place. You can't think of them just simply as China imposing something on Africa. And in the second place, when looking at Africa's decision-making, you then have to look at their 
all of their different uh, relationships, not only their relationship with China, but also the considerable weaknesses in their relationship with the West, which pushes them in certain ways in the direction of China. Well, let's kind of back up a little bit and, and put some context to Belt and Road, because I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with just the scope and, and just how ambitious this is. It's going to impact 65 countries, about 60% of the world's population. Pricewaterhouse Coopers estimates that it will cost roughly a trillion dollars. I mean, this is just massive amounts of money in today's world, that no one is spending this kind of money uh, on international development. You know, it's just, it's astounding. And there's an estimate that says about $250 billion of Belt and Road projects are now underway. So we're about 25% into this. Now, it's very easy to oversell Belt and Road because, as you pointed out, it is, it's taken on mythological proportions here. People don't really know. Is this a kind of centrally planned government initiative? Is it driven in large part by the private sector? It's a lot of different things. It's a Rorschach test in many ways. But I was listening to the Seneca podcast this week with uh, Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, and they were talking with Professor Stanley Rosen. And he brought a very interesting point. I'd like to get your take on this from an African point of view. He said Belt and Road in so many ways is, is really just seen, particularly in emerging markets and developing countries, as a public good. I mean, this is billions and billions of dollars of investment in, in the public good, in shared resources, in new infrastructure, valuable infrastructure. And in many countries, particularly in places like Kenya and Ethiopia, uh, that is seen as nothing but, but positive uh, because nobody else is coming in to build massive airports in Nairobi, ports in Kenya, in, in Tanzania. Uh, you know, nobody else is doing it on this scale. And the Chinese are actually doing it. So that is the optimist view of it. Um, there is definitely a negative view, but I'd, I'd like to get your take on what Stanley Rosen was saying about that. If Stanley Rosen just, of course, is the uh, very famous noted sinologist out of the University of Southern California who was a guest on Seneca, and he's quoted quite a bit. But I just I thought that was a very interesting take in it as it relates to soft power and the, and the perception of China. I 100% agree. I mean, you're talking about about Kenya. I mean, Kenya still looks great, uh, and Kenya still looks like a like a, a great investment environment compared to some of the other Belt and Road investments. I mean, the one that I keep coming back to is the massive internet data processing center that the Chinese built in Djibouti. Now, I mean, imagine Djibouti applying to the World Bank, saying like, "We'd like to have a state of the art fastest internet center in the world built here. Please give us money for that." Uh, who would? You know who would who would spend that kind of money to 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 set to put in uh, you know kind of one of the one of the, the fastest data networks in the world um, in this little bit of desert you know um, off 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 a very dangerous coast in Africa like it it makes no sense in any kind of Western development paradigm um, and so the I think Belt and Road suddenly opens these these potential these these kind of points of potential for for small african countries that that i think was uh, they were unimaginable before so that's that's the positive take on it the downside of it is that you know all of this is being done in china's interest the chinese are not benevolent here they're doing this because they think this is the straight trade strategy that will bring them the most profits put them their position in the world to be stronger and so you know, while it looks on the outside, there's a veneer of altruism and there's a veneer of benevolence. At the end of the day, this is really all about what's in the 
best interest of Beijing. And so a lot of people will say, you know, you're being tricked into kind of being lulled with all this cash to align yourself with the Belt and Road with the Chinese. But at the end of the day, you are going to be stuck either with uh, a presence in your country that you don't want, either with a trade relationship that is highly imbalanced, or in the case of Djibouti, with a military presence that you may not want in the long run. My thinking is that a lot that it is less them being tricked and more of a calculated risk um, that they're taking. Um, because in you know in a lot of these cases, it's not like Africa is is some kind of you know Eden that is not affected by the world economy. Africa is is greatly affected and most of, most of the time negatively affected by by the actions of the world powers. So they are that is part of the calculus. Um, so I think being you know having a world power power far away making decisions about their own economy that that end up having a fallout on your own economy, that's one problem that Africa faces on a daily basis. But being then part of an official route that that come that, that foreign power is hanging its reputation on, being an official part of that, that's a different calculus, right? Kind of that that isn't simply being a, an, an innocent bystander in, in the fallout of, of someone else's economic decision making. You are then part of a bigger scheme that that other person is on the hook for. Um, and I think that, you know, whether that then, you know, kind of increases foreign influence in Africa, is that I think foreign influence is rife in Africa anyway. Um, you know, even if the Chinese didn't build their base in, in Djibouti, Djibouti already has bases from France, Japan and the US there. So it's not like they are innocent from foreign influence. I think in, in a lot of cases, the, the calculation is, well, yeah, this is going to increase Chinese influence and possibly in some bad ways, but we at least are getting something out of it. Whereas in the other cases, they don't get anything out of it frequently. So I'd like to quote your story and get your take on it. You, you say that Belt and Road is changing the narrative of globalization. Globalization up until now has often been equated with westernization. And Belt and Road, with this hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, the export now of Chinese you know, technology, Chinese soft power, Chinese movies, as we've talked about in recent shows, is now challenging that linkage, that association between westernization and globalization. And, and you talk about the narrative of globalization. And you say, let me quote here, Africa is particularly susceptible to this new story of globalization related to the Chinese. After all, Few places suffered more under the old Western-centered version of globalization than Africa. China, in contrast, is a relatively unknown entity to many Africans and thus offers an appeal that the West doesn't with its considerably more weighty historical baggage. Unpack that for us. In, in relation to the narrative of globalization, um, if you think about both people who praise the, the good aspects of globalization and those who, who criticize the bad aspects of globalization, frequently both of those tend to be in, in relation to Western ideas or Western things flooding into other places. So you have, for example, the, the you know, if you think of the narratives around democratization in Myanmar, for example, you know, where Myanmar was, was praised for having an election for, you know, kind of taking over some some kind of forms of Western democracy. Um, many countries have been praised for that over the last 20 years um, after the end of the Cold War. And there was this narrative, obviously the most famous, you know, proponent of that narrative was Francis Fukuyama with the end of history narrative. You don't need to be as, you know, as, as extreme as him, but, you know, this idea that 
that Western democracy, Western multi-party democracy is a form that can take root in many different societies. It's And the more it flows out into the world, the better the world gets. Um, so there, there's a kind of a positive, happy narrative about Western globalization. There's, the flip side of that is the negative narrative of Western globalization. Like the idea of like, you know, her, like I'm just making it a facetious example, but you know they used to be amazing, like these goat herders in Africa who just lived off the land, and now they're all like slaves to McDonald's. You know that kind of that kind of narrative of of the bad aspects of uh, or criticized aspects of Western civilization flooding in everywhere. You know there's a KFC at the Forbidden City, that kind of that kind of narrative that we saw a lot in the 90s. This is a new narrative of globalization where the West is just left out. You know, kind of, it's a it's a narrative of globalization, uh, of a, a kind of a rollout of a for, of a foreign powers, you know, infrastructure and and con- networks of control into global South countries, where the West is just sitting on the side, like it's not consulted, it's not part really part of the story. It's a it's a you know it's a new form of globalization, with just non-Westerners involved in it, um, and that I think is something the West is not used to. It's not used to being left out of the out of the story because it was its own story. That the West was always at the center of the story. Now suddenly we're seeing this kind of moment, and I think the the real waking up to, of to that reality is, is still coming in the West. This idea of like, oh, now things are just running without us. We no one is even interested in our opinion about the you know and um, in relation to this. And this is not something Western people are going to like. No, it, um, and I it's but it's not that, so is, th- that is going to that's going to be a drama playing out over the next few decades of how the West is coming to terms. Yeah, I'm not sure it's going to take as long as a few decades because out here in Asia, that's something we're seeing now. And, and when we mean the West here in Asia, that is, that's the United States here in this case. In Africa, it's, it's a more complicated relationship with Europe. But with the demise of TPP, for example, uh, a lot of Asian countries are just moving on and they're just not consulting. And they're just they're, – there's not a faith that the United States will be a reliable partner. And so I think it's interesting you bring up this point that it's not that they're turning their backs on – the United States or Europe for that matter, they're just not consulting them. They just don't feel there's relevance in it. And you're seeing that in the security relationship out here in Asia, certainly in the trade relationship, but that they're just, life is moving on. Let's just talk about the impact of Belt and Road in Africa, because that is the core of your article. And you quote some Chinese government documents that say there are two African hubs, Kenya and Egypt. And that started making me think a little bit about, you know, if Belt and Road is so limited to to just those, you know, two countries. And, and of course, Djibouti is also benefiting from it. A little bit is in Tanzania as well. But for the most part, it's in that northeastern hub. Uh, and what happens to the rest of the continent? Are we going to see a consolidation of Chinese investment and Chinese attention to those two or three countries along the Belt and Road at the expense of the rest of the continent? Tell, talk to me a little bit about how you see the balance of China's engagement in Africa being tilted by Belt and Road. This is going to be very interesting, I think. Um, in the first place, I think it's going to be a little bit, uh, a few more countries than, than those you mentioned, because 
the you know one part of one part of Chinese development in East Africa, which has then since since which predated the coining of Belt and Road, but has since been essentially you know dragged into Belt and Road, is a kind of is a regional integration via a big rail network that's being built. So, you know, it it would pull in a lot of Central African countries, including the DRC and Burundi and Rwanda, um, connecting them via rail to ports um, in Tanzania and in Kenya. Um, so, you know, there is a certain amount of, of, of that regional integration that might in the future, if all of those get, actually get built, um, you know, kind of connect to the entire sub-region to Belt and Road. Um, but, yeah, I agree that there's a, you know, there's a steep difference between China's investment in Africa, uh, the whole of different sections of Africa, and then its investment in Francophone Africa, which is mostly West Africa. Um, you know, there, isn't, there hasn't nearly been as much Chinese investment um, in Francophone in Africa as in other sections. So that is already going to be interesting. And then, you know, kind of, it seems to me like China is increasingly focusing a lot of energy and money on East Africa because it's so, so you know, effectively positioned. Um, and then it becomes a big challenge for a place like South Africa, for example, to see whether they can connect themselves to that network. Um, and, you know, it becomes an open question of what happens with a country like Namibia, for example, who's, you know, far away and on the other side of the continent. Um, Nigeria being obviously the key example there um, is whether there's going to be ways of connecting to that network or whether there's going to be other kinds of development or whether they just fall off the table. I think it's interesting to consider that in the context of the past couple of shows that you and I have done, where we've discussed the dramatic fall in trade volumes between China and Africa, and now more recently, new research that's coming out about the repatriation of Chinese migrants from Africa back to, to China as well and the diminished population there. So in this, I, this era that we seem to be going into where there appears to be less interest from the Chinese to invest in Africa because, of course, the Chinese now have a lot more investment opportunities today around the world than they did, say, 10 or 15 years ago when they first embarked on their, uh, their agenda in Africa. And now also as investment is being consolidated into things like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, and also Belt and Road, that there's less money to go around for, say, pan-African development as there was in previous, say, five, ten years. Will that exacerbate the haves and the have-nots in Africa in terms of who benefits from Chinese largesse? I think it might. It seems to me that the the number of, of actors who are involved are becoming there's more actors involved in the, and the relationships are becoming more complicated. Um, for example, if you look at, at Ethiopia, all of these these um, state the, these special economic zones that are being set up by with the help of Chinese money in Ethiopia, um, they pull in a lot of Chinese private companies, um, and a lot of these private companies then also have very elite relationships with the Ethiopian government. So it, there's a there's an interesting kind of um, n bunch of actors that are that are going to move in. I suspect um, to particular. Um, countries on the on the the route of of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and other countries are not simply not going to draw the same amount of attention. I think the other complicating figure uh, issue of as as well is. 
increasing uh, controls from Beijing on capital leaving the country. Um, so it's, you know, as you mentioned, there's all of these different investment opportunities, but there's also a lot of pressure leaning on investors to, for example, to making it harder, for example, to like buy a soccer club in Italy, for example. Um, but for projects around along the Belt and Road route, though there's actually considerably less pressure. And and some I, I read some consultants being quoted saying that if you if you have any any connection, your project have any connection to any Belt and Road anything, you put that in the first line of the application. Um, of the, of the proposal because it just smooths the way all the way through. Um, so it, you know, there, there seems to be the, the China, the Chinese state and their capital, you know, capital flight laws uh, are playing, is they're playing a role there too. You brought up a very interesting point at the, you know, somewhere around the midway point using what I think is very provocative language where you talked about the emergence of a new proxy war. And, and I think that's very loaded language in an African context, given the Cold War history, where Africa really was, uh, you know, the battleground between the Soviets and the Americans in, in proxy battles up and down the continent. And, and, I, and, and I'm curious to get your take on what is the next proxy war that you foresee may potentially come with Africa being stuck in the middle? In, in my writing, I, I was careful to not say that I think this will happen. I simply say that, you know, it raises the, the fact that China now has a base in, in Djibouti raises that specter. However, I felt, as you said, I felt it was important to use that provocative language simply to make the point that Africa is still suffering from the previous proxy war. Um, you know, the, I mean, a, a place like Mozambique, I think, probably has zero Zero people in the U.S. of zero awareness of of Mozambique, except the fact maybe the, of its name. But Mozambique is still rebuilding from from civil wars that were funded by the U.S. to a certain extent. One part of it was, you know, there was U.S. funds funneled through apartheid South Africa into one part of that civil war. So, you know, Africa was the place where the Cold War was not cold, where where it, it actually turned into actual battles. And that has just been wiped off the table. You know, no one remembers that. Um, and But Africa remembers it, and, and they're still trying to, to rebuild from that time. So that was the reason, you know, why I raised that. I don't particularly... I mean, you know, I'm not a psychic, so so who knows what could happen. The only the only thing that I that I saw, which was made me a little anxious when I saw it, I don't know if you saw it. There's a very small article in the press about a two or three weeks ago, just after the the first bunch of Chinese troops were sent to Djibouti. Um, just as they arrived in Djibouti, apparently there was some uh, miscommunication happening with the Japanese um, base in Djibouti, and the, there was a brief moment where the Japanese troops in the Japanese base were actually scrambled into battle stations, apparently. Um, and then they realized, oh no, this is just simply these Chinese troops now, the first 20,000 whatever was arriving. Um, and I, it suddenly brought home to me, so there was no incident, but it suddenly brought home to me how much potential there is for an incident. I mean, imagine, you know, just any kind of incident between between Chinese and Japanese troops, how that could, you know, how that could escalate. Um, and Djibouti is so small, it's all of these bases sitting there cheek by jowl. 
it's it's dangerous um you know so so that that is what i was was referring to but i i don't have any kind of idea about actually you know whatever could could happen i mean it's up in the air i i tend to think that given china's you know relatively small presence in djibouti and and on you know in africa as a whole compared to the americans for example uh the risk is quite low and and also because mm. typically Chinese troops are confined to their barracks for the most part. This is what we've seen yes. in, in Sudan, in South Sudan. Uh, even though they're active combat troops, we've heard reports that they don't leave their bases very often. So they're probably under very, very tight leash, in part because they don't want to spark a conflict either with the Japanese or with the Americans, much less, you know, to have an incident uh, you know, comparable to what American troops do in Okinawa and Japan, where there's been you know behavioral problems from the troops. So I, I get the impression that the Chinese troops are are not going to be allowed to wander off base too far and to mingle too much with uh, Japanese and American sailors in uh, in the local bars in Djibouti. That that seems a hard a hard thing to imagine. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, and then of course you know all of the work they've done so far has been under the auspices of the UN. So that yeah. has its own level of of control. But, you know, the whole premise of Wolf Warrior 2, the movie, this idea that, you know, Chinese special forces can intervene in other countries in pursuit of protection of Chinese interests, uh, that could actually one day materialize and cause, uh, you know, either an issue with a host government or, of course, if the f- premise of Wolf Warrior 2 ever comes to reality, you know, the idea of Chinese special forces blowing to pieces tons of white people, um, that probably won't go down very well in, uh, in you know, in, in the U.S. and Europe. So, so there is always, there's always that room for, you know, for, uh, you know, for conflict. And, of course, this is what we worry about here in Asia when you've got the Japanese, the American, and the Chinese navies all up against each other in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. So these are, these are concerns that we're seeing in many, many different parts of the world. Let's close out our discussion today looking towards the future. And, and it was interesting because you've talked about throughout the whole essay about Belt and Road in many ways as if it's a, a fait accompli, as if it's something that's going to happen. But then towards the end of your essay, you kind of bring in this conditionality to it, which I thought was very interesting. Whether China's Belt and Road initiative will ever be a reality, you write, and what part of Africa will play in it remains open questions. And I think that's an interesting part be, point to make here because although Belt and Road today – is off and running, hundreds of billions of dollars of investments. We don't know in the next few years if they'll be able to live up to the hype. Um, A lot of people don't think they will. And so, but the interesting part is that you say it gives gives Africa a glimpse of an alternative future. What's that mean? I think Africa has become very used to a very very limited view of the future in in terms of its relationship with the West. Um, You know, as, as I alluded to, the West tends to tends to think of Africa as a set of problems that it needs to solve. And increasingly, those problems include the fact that Africans just want to move to the West. Um, you know, so so frequently, the last over the last few years, we've seen Western, a lot of Western resources and energy being spent on simply containing Africans, trying to, you know, trying to keep them away. Um, and that is that's true for people who who get on boats and sail across the ocean, um, but it's also true for just people who are trying to get a visa. You know, a lot of a lot of Africans I know just they 
they talk about getting a visa to the U.S. as this thing of like akin to like, you know, buying a house maybe someday when you're 70, that kind of thing. You know, it's like, oh, maybe in someday I'll be able to like visit visit New York. Um, you know, so it, it becomes this kind of this kind of ivory tower citadel, you know, where mostly designed to to keep Africans out while also maintaining a loudspeaker to preach at them every now and then. Um, whereas China just, I think, opens up a bunch of bunch of new opportunities, and a lot of them are unexpectedly negative, in in, in dangerous, you know, kind of or, or negative potentials. So, for example, every now and then, you know, Africa is caught wrong-footed by some new craziness, you know, kind of coming from the China-Africa relationship. The newest one being suddenly all of these donkeys disappearing right across rural Africa, you know, in order to 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 feed, uh, you know, donkey skin gelatin-based medicine trades in, in China. Those kind of, you never know what's going to happen. But at the same time, it also opens up all of these kind of crazy opportunities of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, kind of maybe we'll just enlarge the sports and then this, you know, kind of Tanzania can then have deep a deep water port. That, that you know those kind of things that were that were never even discussable in you know with with Bretton Woods institutions. So it is this kind of crazy time I think in Africa where um, there's currently a whole bunch of like crazy dangers and a whole bunch of crazy opportunities all all kind of being being kind of raised at the same time and no one is really sure how many of those are going to pan out. Um, but at least there's something, you know, kind of at least there's something happening. I think the relationship with the West is so stagnant. Um, the West isn't really interested interested in escalating the relationship with Africa. The West doesn't care whether Africa develop or not develops or not. Um, so Africa was basically stuck. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think and I think this is this has this new like volatile potential well, that makes people nervous, but at the same time also excited. I think that's absolutely true in part because here the United States. We're now seven, eight months into the Trump administration. We still don't have an assistant secretary of state for African affairs that's stuck in Congress. Donald Trump has not given a single policy address on Africa. Uh, there has been no movement in African policy out of the State Department. So I think to your point, that is, there's nothing happening in the U.S., and at least there's something happening in Beijing. Uh, that makes it interesting. We still don't know if the long term will be positive or negative for Africa, but I think you point out well that it is not going to be uh, boring by any stretch of the imagination. The article is, Here's How China is Changing Africa's Future. You can find it over at the Huffington Post at HuffingtonPost.com. Just look for Kobus van Staden, and you'll find, his, uh, you'll find all of his work and a lot of the work that we've done for the Huffington Post over the years. But this article is particularly good. It's particularly interesting in part because it takes a very contrarian view on a number of different issues related to China's engagement in Africa. And, and also, I think in many ways, what I like about Kobus's point of view is that he also challenges Africans and African governments, that this is up to them. They are in control of the destiny here. This is not something being done to them. They are not the victim here anymore. And I think that's a very interesting point that you make throughout the article. Kobus, uh, thank you so much. You're our guest today, not the host, so it was a pleasure <laughs> to have you on the show. Uh, you <laughs> know, you. I, I just, I feel like I have to thank you for it. But uh, listen, Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 
The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.